And so I picked up the bike and I probably took 10 steps before I stopped. I was like, that is not, this is not an option. Like first I can't carry the bike. Second, I'm not running in cleats. So I took the road shoes off and stuffed them up under my Jersey straight away. And then I started running. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice. They peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is The Adventure Stash with Payson McKelvin. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Adventure Stash podcast. Today, Kiel Reinen. He's a Trek cycling family member, but honestly not someone I knew too, too much about. But when I heard about his crazy 18 miles of running in socks at unbound gravel in an attempt to finish the race he really flew up my wish list of guests um, and he was kind enough to help make it happen you'll hear the audio on some of this episode is a is a little bit colorful shall we say because keel was riding a ferry he lives on bainbridge island off the coast of washington state his family uh, was on the ferry with him. We even got to chat with his wife a little bit. It was just a really fun kind of uh, holistic conversation, but please cut us a little slack with uh, some of the background noise here. And then personally, I kind of liked it because it gives a little color to the conversation. Um, I want to give a quick heads up that we have a new film that launched just a few days ago um, on my YouTube channel. Trail Town Bentonville is live. This is a short film documenting my ride of all of Bentonville's trails in one day, uh, but it's a lot more than that. I went out there to basically pull back the curtain and tell the story of who the people are uh, that make the mountain bike capital of the world what it is. It's about an 18 minute film. You can find it on my YouTube channel, just Payson McKelvin. And you'll see at the end, stick around after the credits because. If you're interested in getting yourself out to Bentonville, there's a big prize giveaway. Basically, a bunch of the supporters of the film, my sponsors, Osprey Packs, Hammerhead, uh, Bike Computers, Orange Seal, Smith Optics, and even the Hub Bike Lounge in Bentonville all threw in pretty crazy prizes. Basically, we are inviting you to go out and also ride all of Bentonville's trails. You don't have to do them all in one day like I did. You can take your time. You have until until December 31st of this year. You can ride you can ride all the trails in one day if you want to, or you can take them bit by bit, piece by piece. The list of trails that you need to check off the list are on my website, paysonmcelvin.com slash Bentonville Trail Challenge. And basically What we want you to do is join the Strava Club, Bentonville Trail Challenge, so you're proving your work, and then share your story on Instagram with the hashtag Bentonville Trail Challenge. And at the end of the year, everyone that completes all of the trails is entered to win a $1,500 gift certificate to Osprey Packs, a Hammerhead Carew 2 bike computer head unit, which is the head unit that I use, a Smith Trace helmet, their new Shift Mag glasses, three years supply of orange seal. So a ton of orange seal tire sealant, 
and a gift certificate, $100 gift certificate to the Hub Bike Lounge where I finished um, my big ride. We'll pick two winners and it doesn't matter how fast you complete all the trails. Uh, We're just looking for the most compelling stories that are shared on social media. So go check it out. Watch the full film on my YouTube channel at Pace McKelvin or go to pacemckelvin.com slash Bentonville Trail Challenge to get all of the details. Thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm in the car with two children. So uh, one of them will be at least nursing. So that should buy us some quiet time. You know, authenticity is overused these days, but I like to try to pretend that we do that pretty well. But this is super next level authenticity, (laughs) Keel. Yeah, life with two kids is is nothing but authentic. No, this is this is great. Yeah, whatever car you have is uh, has very good sound dampening. Yeah, that'd be a 1998 Subaru Forester. Uh, Shout out. So this is actually a really good jumping off point. Can you please explain why you're on a ferry right now? Because I, I, I'm pretty sure that this is almost a daily occurrence for you, but most people won't be familiar Believe with it or that. Not, I, I don't actually love leaving the island all that much. So I, I try to avoid getting on the ferry when I have to, um, but... It is very common to be on boats here. Uh, if we're not taking the ferry boat, we're taking our boat uh, out. And I'm, I'm headed over to Seattle uh, to volunteer at a um, little uh, clinic at our, our practice race over at Seward Park. Uh, they do a little pre-clinic for uh, people who are getting into racing. And so the same fellow uh, has been running that. Uh, race since I first did it back in probably 2002 and that was my very first race so it's pretty fun to go back and uh, catch up with those guys and and the local scene over in Seattle yeah so you live on an island in the Pacific in the Pacific Northwest can you uh, give us a little more background on that yeah, I live here, I guess, mainly because I was born and raised uh, here, and I uh, was lucky enough to experience childhood sort of unadulterated, and I live down the street from the house I grew up in. Uh, I live next door to my parents, and I'm trying to provide that sort of same quality of, of childhood for my kids. And, you know, everywhere changes. The island's changed since I was, was young, but uh, in a lot of ways, it's the same. And it's still a pretty idyllic place. And, um, you know, with the growth of, of Seattle, you know, we've certainly felt that here on the island since our ferry boat goes straight to downtown Seattle. But uh, it's still a, a relatively rural, um, small town feel here, especially in the winter when the when the weather turns and only the locals remain, it's still a, a really quiet, you know, beautiful green place. And we've got uh, actually amazing sort of terrain to ride on. Uh, it's really, uh, I think now we have 35 to 40 miles of trail on the island. Um, and it's, some of it's a little bit, single tracky some of it's a little bit more like cyclocross trails some of it's more like you know beach trails uh 
but it's all very fun to ride. And I, I'm, I think a lot of people are surprised by how much time I spend just riding on the Island versus, you know, going off Island to, to get in a bigger loop. Um, but it's, it's really a special spot. And I think with all the travel we do, anytime I get the chance to be at home, to come home, um, I really love being here. Yeah. What's the name of the Island and how far Uh, off the coast is it? Bainbridge Island. And we're actually pinched between the peninsula and the mainland. So we're in the Salish sea and, uh, we're, we're kind of directly West of Seattle. Uh-huh. And we are very close to the peninsula at the north end of the island. We're maybe four or five miles of water between us and Seattle. That's pretty significant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not a quick ferry ride. It's it's thirty five minutes, you know. And then if you gotta wait for the ferry, you can add up maybe an hour total. Yeah. Um. And how how big is Bainbridge Island? It is, I don't know, in square miles. It's roughly 20 miles long by probably 12 miles wide. Okay. How many, so you mentioned riding and, and the fact that people are surprised by how much riding you do on the island, how much training you do on the island. How many different routes do you have? And like how, how many miles can you squeeze out of the island without, you know, double backing a whole bunch? Well, we got the Chili Hilly. And we got the chili hilly in reverse. And <laughs> this I, sounds like this sounds like Zwift or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the chili hilly is this big ride that that thousands of people will come over from Seattle on a ferry boat on um, that morning in February on a cold, rainy morning, generally at the end of February, and and do this organized ride uh, that's put on by um, our local cycling groups, uh, and it's it's called the chili hilly. At the end, they have chili. Uh, and pies generally and it's sort of a generic perimeter loop of the island i would say so it's it's not the exact perimeter of the island but it's pretty close without like double backing and getting on some weird side roads and uh and it's a great loop it is the standard loop uh i probably do it 10 times per week and (laughs) another shocking statistic is 90 percent of the time if not more I do it counterclockwise. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. So I, I almost never do the chili hilly loop in reverse. You prefer turning left? I prefer turning left. Yeah. yeah. Are you right-handed? It's, it's something that feels very wrong. I am I am right-handed. Yeah. And uh, believe it or not, there's there is one other professional cyclist from the island, uh, Heidi Franz. She rides for rally. And we've had this debate a number of times, but neither one of us likes to do the chili hilly in reverse. It just yeah. doesn't feel right. Well, I, I mean, in the mountain bike world, um, I know you ride a lot off-road, so you probably know this too, but generally it seems like right-handed people like turning left and left-handed people are better at turning right, or so I've heard. Yeah, I so I haven't noticed that exactly. Like for me, it's... I. I have to have my, my left foot in front. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that makes me want to turn right because I I don't want to, you know, like I want to be able to kick up my, my right foot on the inside of the turn. And, uh, I, I definitely think if you have a predominant foot, there's, there's a correlation there. Yeah. Um, okay. So in, in all seriousness though, how does someone 
it sounds like two people get into and stay committed to cycling at a at a level where they do it professionally, very successfully professionally. I know Heidi a little bit just via online. Um, how did you, how were you exposed to bike racing? Um, and how did it take you all the way to Europe? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been quite an adventure. Uh, in some ways, you know, now that I'm older and I hope wiser, I look back at it all and think how improbable the whole thing really was. You know, the younger version of me was so bound and determined, it seemed inevitable. Uh, But, you know, now with the experiences I've had, uh, I recognize the fact that it was incredibly uh, unlikely (laughs) to work out the way it did. But I, I caught the cycling bug you know, later than most of my peers in the Peloton, um, but maybe normal for American racers uh, around the time I was 16 and 15 going on 16. And um, the uh, one, well, there's, there's actually two bike shops here on the Island. I went to high school with one of the owner's daughters um, and then the, the second shop. Um, so there's that's BI cycle. And then the other shop classic cycle, um, and back in the day, BI cycle was a bit more of the commuter shop and, and classic cycle was a bit more of the racer shop. And so I, uh, I ended up at classic cycle because my dad had this old Carlton road bike that he had had restored years and years and years ago. And he, he was never really a racer, but he, he did the odd like group ride back when he lived in Santa Cruz. And so he knew, you know, what road racing was, uh, but it's certainly not, you know, like I'm no, uh, Pete Stetna, uh, or Alex house. Like I, it's not in my, uh, my DNA. It's not in my family. Um, and I, you know, like, and racing alongside those guys at Taylor Finney too, it just, it was really amazing to watch how different it was for them. Like they, they knew so much more than me hmm. at such a younger age. And, uh, it, in some ways I really appreciate that I had to figure out a lot of stuff myself. And in other ways I feel like, boy, it really slows you down when you don't have sort of um, someone to help you through all of that stuff, you know, whether it's reaching out to teams or finding sponsors or knowing what the right equipment to ride is or which races matter. There's just a lot of stuff, you know, and I think it's true for a lot of American cyclists. You're just, there's no straightforward path, right? Everyone in American cycling has a really different story. Uh, we, we all took very different roads to get here. And, and that's cool too, because we all got to invent the wheel, but it's, it just certainly takes a lot more energy. Um, but anyway, the, at the time, um, there was a mechanic working at Classic Cycle who now actually owns the shop, uh, Paul Johnson. And he um, knew that I would ride my bike with my best buddy to crew practice at five in the morning. And we'd ride home and we'd ride our bikes to school. And so he just saw us riding all the time because it's a small island. And so one time when I was in the shop, you know, getting a tube or something, he said, why don't you and your buddy, uh, Francis, come over to Seattle and do the Seward Park crit with us. And, um, and Paul was a, a mechanic for the national team back in the day. So he knew race, you know, he knew European racing. And so he took us over there. And uh, I think I got dropped, threw up, you know, the, the cool thing about the local scene over there, though, then this is the race where I'm going over to teach the clinic right now. Um, 
you know, they knew if you were a young kid, just trying, like they would let you back into the race after you got lapped. And, you know, you were told the protocol, like stay out of the way and, you know, don't, don't get in the sprint or crash anybody. But there was a lot of respect for people who wanted to try and figure it out. It didn't, it didn't have that sort of um, exclusivity. I think that's really synonymous with road cycling a lot of the time. And so that was, it made it easier to, to, to get in at an entry level and, and feel like you belonged. And uh, it's also one of the reasons I think that I've clung so tightly to and become so attached to gravel riding uh, and the off-road scene is it feels a lot like how I remember the, the grassroots, you know, road scene feeling when I started here. Yep. Uh, which was atypical, right? It was not, that was not the normal version. So uh, I really, I appreciated the the chance that I had to enter that world. And, you know, it made all of my, you know, transitions in life, going to college, moving away from home, uh, living in, you know, foreign countries, all of that was only possible because I had an you know, built-in community through cycling. So even for those who, you know, don't have aspirations of becoming a European pro, I really, I think that athletics um, are a really healthy outlet for, you know, people growing up trying to figure stuff out. Yep. Yep. Now, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm, I'm not in the world tour scene, obviously, but, uh, as a you're implying that I am <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, on paper you are keel <laughs> that's that's right on paper <laughs> um no, but from from an outsider's perspective, it seems like and you sort of touched on this a minute ago, it seems like um oftentimes American world tour pros have a little little bit different um mindset in regards to doing this as a job as compared to sort of the, the traditional European way. And I'm thinking of guys like Alex Howes, like you mentioned, Lachlan, obviously, uh, Taylor Finney. Um, there's a, there's a few of course that take a little bit more traditional approach, whether it be a Lawson or SEP or someone like that. But, um, you seem to almost be like on one extreme a little bit in that regard. Um, and, I guess m- most specifically right now, I'm thinking about the fact that you decided to stay on this island. <laughs> you described for us, you know, how limited the training is. And, and I know when you're on a world tour team, you're always going off to training camps and, and riding places and, and doing races all over the world. But can you explain why you made the decision to not, you know, follow, uh, follow tradition and, you know, say move to Boulder or move to Girona or, or something like that? Yeah, I well, so to be perfectly honest, I I did do some of that stuff, and then and then I started doing what was atypical and like reversing all of my tracks. So mm. I uh, I did a year a year of school at University of Washington, uh, and actually commuted from the island on the ferry boat over to school uh, four days a week, and well, trying to ride and figure it all out. But I you know, I wasn't really ready to leave home. And I, I just, I do love where I grew up. I'm very, I, I'm 
a lot of generations from here. Um, I'm registered to the Cowlitz tribe, which is down at the bottom of the, the Salish Sea. Uh, and so we have a lot of family in the area, a lot of family history. And uh, I, I really struggled to sort of leave that behind. And I ended up going to University of Colorado in Boulder uh, for uh, a couple more years of, of school. And that's where I met my wife, uh, who's from Denver. And it was a really good time to be in Boulder uh, and, you know, like in my early twenties, trying to become a professional cyclist. Uh, and don't mind those startup noises. That's just my very fancy ignition system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, it's, hard to describe exactly what the draw is but it it's everybody comes to the island in the summer because that's when it's you know most beautiful in the northwest but i actually i love it here most in the winter and my older daughter will say the same you know she she loves the northwest the way it should be you know green and drenched in rain and <laughs> uh devoid of <laughs> tourists yep. uh it's it, it's definitely hard to describe in words and i yeah i just i i i always knew i'd come back so even though i went to, to school in boulder there for a couple of years and met my wife um we pretty quickly came back and you know moved to the island and uh i bought a piece of property just down from the road down the road from where i grew up um, less than a quarter mile. And then we bought a trailer. And when we were in the States, we were living in the trailer while building the house on the property. And then, you know, living the rest of the time in um, Girona, like every other American, cause it's easy. <laughs> and yeah, the, the, basically any chance I can get to be home. I'm, I'm home. Uh, you know, the, the life of a, a traveling world tour rider means, not a lot of home time, but, uh, I've managed to, to piecemeal it together as best I can. And I've been really lucky and Trek's always been really, um, awesome about letting me, uh, get home and, and not, you know, um, having requiring all riders to be based at all times in Europe. Yeah. Um, what was the process like convincing your wife to, move to the island <laughs> maybe she can what answer con if she's there what, what convinced you to move to the island jordan oh you, you tricked me fully i tricked her apparently yeah how's that how long did it take eight years eight years yeah. was it that long yeah wow Jeez. i know you said pretty you, you were saying like you convinced me pretty quickly but no 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 it took a while <laughs> so what was the what was the catalyst uh you wanted me to try to move try living in the northwest mm. and so you convinced me that we should rent out our house in boulder it made the most sense and they convinced me that i should get a washington driver's license so we could get the tax benefits of living in washington and then we had to get a washington license plate because we had to re-register our car <laughs> and all of a sudden my my friend katie <laughs> was talking to her on the phone one day and she's like hey jordan to Washington, right? And she was right. That's funny. That's that's <laughs> a pretty. That sounds like you had quite the master plan, Keel. That's like step by step. 
le- literal legal steps to to make it a reality. <laughs> a, a little bit devious, yeah. You may, you only, say, only mildly devious. <laughs> um, life's pretty good. We just we just got done with a little trip up to the San Juan Islands, oh, bouncing around on the on the sailboat, and uh, it's it's hard to deny that summertime up there is about as good as it gets. Yeah. So. It, it talk to, it, as far as pro cyclists go, it sounds like you have some of the best work-life balance I've ever heard, uh, particularly as far as world tour riders go. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, pulling that off. Like, do you do you ever have culture shock when you're in a European peloton and there's that, you know, uh, parallel universe that isn't really made up of the same reality that the rest of the real world is and then you yeah are on a sailboat with your family you know a yeah week later <laughs> absolutely totally yeah i i think like any uh anybody who you know has spent a long time you know meditating or doing yoga you know they'll talk about how like oh it's you know it's a practice and you're constantly trying to improve yourself and do a better job with you know this that and the other thing and I feel like that's true about work-life balance. Like it has been a process. I was not always uh, as good at balancing things as I am now. And, and, you know, I can go the other direction too, right? Like it, having two kids uh, and trying to be a professional athlete is, is challenging. It's really hard to justify some of the sacrifices and, uh, you know, and ask your, your kids who don't, you know, understand yet what it is you, you do, you know, to, help play along. And I, I think I've done a better job, you know, at points in my career, especially in the second half and sort of embracing the, the chaos. But, uh, I think the hardest thing for me now is, is the unknown and and COVID, uh, really sort of exacerbated a lot of the unknowns, you know, like it's, it's normal that we don't have exactly what our schedule will be or know exactly how we'll feel, uh, you know, at a particular race and you try to control as many variables as you can, but it's not always, uh, within your, you know, ability to decide exactly how it will all work out. And that sort of the moving goalposts that was the COVID experience was really difficult mentally for me. And, I, I wanted to be more adaptable. I wanted to be better at uh, making it all, you know, going with the flow and making it all work. But uh, I, uh, I found it really hard. And I, I think some of that is, you know, compounded by the fact that having a family, you know, complicates all of that. Uh, but I also thought that being a dad would make me better and more adaptable in those types of situations. So uh, there's you know, the balance continues, I guess. And I, I think we've, we've definitely done a good job of you know, embracing the experiences we have access to here in our area. Um, and, and also getting a lot out of our, our life in Europe, it, you know, life over there is a lot less chaotic, I guess. I, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who can sit still. I don't sit on the couch a lot. I'm, I'm constantly chopping wood or doing house projects or sailing or, boat projects you know there's just there's it's a never-ending list and uh 
being in Spain, there's just a lot less that I can do. And so sometimes even though it was harder to not be around family, um, it was, it was also easier to sort of be in the zone and focus on training and, uh, you know, living the quote unquote life of a professional cyclist. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like you have your hands full over there and, and I know you have other obligations tonight, so we can start, um, winding down here, but I did want to ask you, um, about your, uh, you might even be tired of talking about it already. Cause I know it grabbed a lot of attention, but, um, your infamous sock run at unbound a few <laughs> weeks ago. So just to set the stage, this is, uh, I don't know, mile 25, very early on. I had just finished dealing with my own mechanical mishaps. Um, and yeah, I got a witness here. You, you saw me on the side of the road. Yeah. So I got going again and within a quarter mile of starting my riding, I see you working on your, your bike and, uh, you say, Hey, you want to ride together? Cause I mean, we both knew we were out of the race, the, the, the competitive aspect of the race at that point. Um, so might as well. Have right. some- and like, and, and that's a beautiful moment, right? Like as, as hard and frustrating as that is, cause I'm sure you like me put a lot of effort into getting ready for that race. It's yeah. also what separates gravel racing from road racing in, in a road racing situation like that. I would feel nothing but frustration. And in a gravel race, there's, you know, a moment of frustration. And then it's followed by a, like a sudden determination of like, Hey, I'm still going to get an adventure and an experience out of this despite not having a result. Absolutely. Yeah. Really well said. So you looked up quickly and said, Hey, you want to ride together? And, um, I said, yeah, I'll soft pedal. But as I was soft pedaling away, I looked at your situation and for some reason (laughs) there was something in the back of my head that said, I don't think Keel's going to be ready soon. <laughs> so did, did you hear what I yelled at you? Cause I, after you said like, yeah, okay. I think you, I, I, I thought you said, maybe you said, or maybe I made it up, but I thought you said, how long is it going to take you? Uh-huh. And I yelled a couple of more minutes or infinity. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, that's great. I don't think I re- yeah. I don't think I heard the infinity part, but regardless, um, I, I ended up not waiting. I, I did soft pedal for about five minutes. Um, but then I suppose, yeah. you know, the, the energy of all the other people around me sort of started to spur me on a little bit. Sucked and, you along. And, yeah, and it, that totally. ended up being the right decision um, because it was closer to infinity than, than a couple minutes for you. Um, can you describe what the rest of your Unbound looked like that day? Yeah. there's a couple of things I guess I should clear up. Well, the first is I'm sure this has happened to you too, where like, how do you draw the line between what is, you know, the equipment's fault and your fault. Yeah. And I think like the easy thing to do is to blame the equipment every time. Um, but that's not necessarily accurate. And then there's like, there's a luck component, right? So like maybe, Maybe I was pushing too hard. Maybe I picked the wrong line, you know, and those are um, failures on my part. Uh, but maybe also I just got super unlucky, you know, and then there was an embedded rock kind of through that sector. And I knew that was the first like sector where there was anything of consequence. And, you know, like for someone who hasn't done Kansas before, I think it's worth mentioning that like the gnarliest sections of Kansas are totally mountain bike worthy. 
they are they're really gnarly but they're minor in in their duration compared to the nice hard pack good gravel sections so like it would never make sense to ride a mountain bike for kansas but you do have to be very cautious for like a few minor chunks of the race uh because your bike is is not maybe the perfect bike for those small sections and uh you know we i think as a group we went through there probably too quick and uh and then in the jostle, I just, you know, I picked a bummer of a line and I, I hit that embedded rock kind of on the side of the, the rim and that cracked it straight away. I lost air. Um, I did my best to sort of repair that. And I thought I could limp on that. You know, I was, like you said, like you realize immediately you're, you're out of contention, but that doesn't mean your day is done. And I was really determined to, to finish. So uh, I repaired as best I could. And then when you saw me, it had already failed again. And that time, you know, much more catastrophically, which I deserved. Like there was no way it was going to hold. I was just <laughs> trying to, you know, trying to make it work anyway. And I definitely pride myself on my MacGyvering skills. So, you know, like I wanted to be creative and, and come up with a solution to try and, you know, make it all work. Uh, and I, you know, I like put a splint in and wrapped an inner tube around the splint. And I, I used a, a tire lever as a splint. And I can't even remember what else I did. There, I had some weird fixes in there for sure. I, I definitely uh, spent some time trying to come up with a solution. And uh, just after you pass me is when I kind of then realized, okay, the bike's not rideable. I'm going to start walking or running or, you know, something like I got to keep moving. There's just this like underlying desire to just keep moving towards the finish line. And so I picked up the bike. And I probably took 10 steps before I stopped. I was like, that is not, this is not an option. Like first I can't carry the bike. Second, I'm not running in cleats. So I took the road shoes off and stuffed them up under my Jersey straight away. And then I worked on the wheel long enough to get it to roll through the frame so that I could at least just push the bike. And I, and then I started running and I, I made it maybe 15 minutes or so before it occurred to me that I could actually take the insoles out of my shoes and put them in my socks. Oh, wow. So that's like foot, smart. foot insole sock. Wow. That's brilliant. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that a lot of people, when they read, read it and they were like, no way you can't run barefoot. Well, <laughs> okay. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have shoes on, but I wasn't entirely barefoot either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so the, I think the insoles made a, a big difference, you know, like those sharp rocks, they hurt, my tendons, but they weren't like piercing my skin. Uh, so that, that definitely was a noticeable difference. Also, like I, I'm not afraid to run. Like I do run, you know, 30 minutes, a couple times a week anyway. So that, I think that's another thing that people don't really expect from coming from like a cyclist is they wouldn't, they wouldn't think you'd run. I, one time I ran a marathon off the couch in the off season (laughs) on a bet and I had to wear, my friends beat up tennis shoes, duct taped. Like we, they were so beat up that we duct taped into my feet. Oh my God. And when the was bet this? Was, this was in like 2008, okay. nine, maybe 2009. Uh, and yeah, my buddy who bet me, it was like a hundred bucks if I finished the marathon. No, it was a it was hundred bucks if I qualified 
met the qualifying time for the Boston Marathon. <laughs> and it was a hundred bucks to him if I didn't finish and anything in between was nil. Uh-huh. And so I, uh, <laughs> I did finish and my time was like just shy of four hours. And I ran a really fast first half. Like I was well within qualifying time to the halfway point. And then at the last 10 K I just fell apart yeah. completely. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm no super runner by any stretch of the imagination. I don't run enough to be running 18 miles, but, uh, I'm not like completely unaccustomed to the, the feeling of getting out and running. And, um, and I like, you know, on the Island, I, I walk around barefoot all the time, which probably makes a big difference. Yeah. My kid, you know, my daughter knows it too. It's, it's called practicing your summer feet. And <laughs> We run around barefoot everywhere we go, uh, which so it do, I mean, if, if anyone, if anyone neat was going to run 18 miles of unbound gravel that day, it was you pretty much. I hope that I was at least like 10% prepared. <laughs> this makes me feel a lot better about your plight, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the other thing too. And I think I'm sure you felt this when you're out there, you know, quote unquote competing, you don't like, you don't think everything through before you do it. Like you just do stuff. Yeah. And I, I started that day really determined to finish. And so I, I ran out of options and it wasn't like I thought to myself, Hey, you can run, you know, 50 miles to the feed zone. If I had thought about it that way, I never would have started. It, it just it wouldn't have made any sense. But like athletes do, you know, like you set small goals. And so it was like, oh, well, you know, maybe I can run for an hour. And if I do that, I, in my, in the back of my head, I was thinking someone's going to, you know, I'm going to come along someone who's had a mechanical issue that's catastrophic, but it won't be their wheel. Mm. And maybe they'll be kind enough to lend me their wheel because that's what I was doing. Like as people were coming by me or, if, or sorry, as I came by some people with mechanicals, I would ask like, Hey, you know, what do you like? Do you need a chain? Do you need a seat? Like I, I had parts that weren't broken and I would have happily handed them over to someone who, you know, could have used them to then finish. And that's, that's like, it's within the rules because it's serendipitous, right? Like you're not, you can't expect it. You can't, you, you can't like anticipate it, but maybe it'll happen. And, and that's also what I found was that like that last 10%, uh, you know, of the Peloton, if you want to call it that at Unbound, they are all so down to help. Like oh, yeah. they, they're there for all the right reasons. It, like you want to figure out, like find out what the ethos of gravel racing is. Just go to the back of the Peloton. Yep. I did a podcast with, uh, we actually just published it yesterday. Um, the dead last finisher from the 200. Uh-huh. And, it was it was awesome. so much fun talking to him. It, his story uh, from Unbound and just his dedication to finishing and just how unbelievably wildly underprepared he and his his buddies were um, was just so much fun to to listen to. Yeah, I mean, like their challenges are almost unsurmountable, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. It's for me, it's almost more interesting than our stories because we came fully prepared. Like we we had all the time to train. We had all the equipment, you know, the resources, all those things. And, you know, they're, they're out there doing the same course that we're doing. That's really cool. It is. Um, I feel like I should leave you to it. It was honestly an absolute pleasure, uh, hearing your family in the background and even getting to talk to your wife a little bit. Um, 
I uh, I really love uh, what you have going on up there. It sounds like a, a pretty cool holistic lifestyle. And uh, I'm going to go back and watch that that little video that Trek made a couple of years ago um, from the island. I remember it being pretty fun. And uh, yeah, I want to refresh. Yeah, it's very... Um... It's very accurate, actually. It's a good representation of here. And I, you know, teamwork for the dream work. It, as every athlete knows, it takes a village. And we don't get to do what we do if we don't have the support around us. And um, my, my family uh, has been incredibly supportive of my career from, from the onset. And uh, it's been a privilege to get to share it with them. And I, you know, as you get older, uh, in your career, you do a lot more reflecting and it's, it's been really cool to reflect on, on all the experiences we've, we've had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for those that might want a visual about some of what we've talked about, um, can you remind me the name of that video that's on YouTube? So there, there were two videos I did based on the area where I live. And, uh, one was, uh, sort of more around the the release of the checkpoint bicycle, and then there was another one we did with SRAM that was more about um, sort of exploring the the peninsula, also on the checkpoint. But it was a while after it had been released, and the um, both videos were, were super fun. The the first one I did with a crew uh, based out of Vancouver, BC, and I just I really enjoyed like getting to show them around the island and show them my lifestyle and uh, we, there's just a lot of sort of, uh, ad libbing and, and creativity that went into both videos. And then the other video I did with the crew out of, out of Portland, um, some of whom were, were friends previously. So, uh, I really enjoyed the process of, of doing both those videos and, and in particular showing off where, where I live. Yep. Good stuff. Well, I hope to see you out there. And uh, I appreciate you giving us the time. I've wanted to catch up with you and get to know you a little bit better for a while now. So I'm glad we finally made it work. Ferry transfer and all. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, making room for the chaos. And I, uh, yeah, I just, I think getting the opportunity to, to know a little bit better um, everyone involved in, in this sort of, you know, the gravel uh, alternative uh, riding world has been really awesome and refreshing for me because it you know getting discovering um gravel riding uh definitely helped me continue to be passionate about what i do and i you know like i used to stick cyclocross tires on my road bike and ride gravel all the time like that that's always been in part of my training just because of where i live but gravel riding as a sort of ethos, you know, the, the crew of people that I gravel ride with out in the Pacific Northwest, that that's something that's newer, you know, like that's something that's being cultivated and created. And, uh, and I, I, you know, like I don't take any credit in its creation. I think there's, there's a lot of people who have, um, have contributed. Um, and so it's, it's just a pleasure to get to know those, those people and to be let into that, that world because uh, it, it is about inclusivity at the end of the day. And uh, I, you know, I want, I want to see more people not just on bikes, but enjoying bikes. And I think uh, gravel riding is a great place space to do that in.
Yep. Yep. Well said. Hope we uh, cross paths again soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks again. Talk to you later. Adios. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Just a quick heads up about the brand new release of Trail Town to Bentonville, a new film that just went up on my YouTube channel. This is another collaboration between my production company, Stash House Productions, and my good friends at Mitchell Mitchell Films. It documents my attempt at riding all of Bentonville, Arkansas trails in one day. And really doing that ride was my my way of getting to know the place a lot better and, and really just an excuse to kind of learn more about this community. Who is behind the mountain bike capital of the world? Why has Bentonville, Arkansas just absolutely exploded as this mountain bike mecca? Um, and so while the film does trace this big ride that I did, it also paints a picture of the place. And, and there's lots of cool interviews in there with the folks that are making the place uh, what it is. At the end of the film, um, you'll notice that there's a call to action. We have a really cool opportunity for everyone that's interested in also going out to Bentonville. If you get yourself out there and ride all of the trails like I did by December 31st, 2021, you're entered to win a massive prize package giveaway, big, big gear giveaway. A few details on that. It doesn't matter how fast you check off the list of all these trails. The list of trails you need to ride are on my website at paceandmckelvin.com slash Bentonville Trail Challenge. You can break it up into as many days as you'd like, or you can do them all in one day like I did if you want to. But it's important that you join the Strava Club, Bentonville Trail Challenge Strava Club, so that we can keep track of your progress. And then also share your story on Instagram. Document it however you like. You can make your own mini film. You can just do a few Instagram stories. Uh, totally up to you. Use the hashtag Bentonville Trail Challenge so we can keep tabs on all of that and, and see all of the, the cool storytelling. And then at the end of the year, we will pick two winners, the two people that we feel, or, or two groups of people, if you want to do it with your friends, that we feel had the most compelling, inspiring, interesting story. Doesn't have to be speed related. It really doesn't matter how fast you do it. Just the most inspiring story, the one that leaves us with, with the biggest impression, I guess. What's up for grabs? Each winner will take home a $1,500 shopping spree at Osprey Packs to get whatever you want to get you out on the, the trail, road, whatever, for your next big adventure. Also, a Karoo 2 head unit made by Hammerhead. This is the head unit that I use. Um, also, a Smith Optics Trace helmet and their new Shift Mag eyewear with a couple of lens options, as well as a three-year supply of Orange Seal tire sealant. That is a ton of of Sealand. Um, and lastly, a $100 gift card to the Hub Bike Lounge in Bentonville uh, to reward yourself for all your hard work once you wrap up uh, all that riding. So get out there, check out the film. If you haven't seen it yet, it's just on my YouTube, Payson McKelvin. And we hope you have fun with that challenge and enjoy the film. Thanks so much to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing the show. Thanks to all of you for listening each and every week. And we'll see you next week.